Hey everyone, welcome to episode 167 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, with me is Lee McLeod. Hey Lee. Hey Chris, what's How's going, it going on? Nope, I get to ask you this time. Okay, what's going, <laughs> what, what's going on? Not much, just at home, just chilling out, ready to record a podcast. Yeah. How are you? You know, the same, pretty much. Though I guess we're recording it now, so. Yep. Well, I, I kept you the, better be ready. I kept the tagline, the spikiest podcast, because we can't. I can't change it every week. Right. People have to to know when it's being subverted. That's true, or else it'll just be the thing instead of being like a surprise. Yeah. And also, you will run out of little oh, puns and sure. jokes eventually. That's why, like Brian Gottlieb, had to stop his like middle name title thing on the previously game podcast. Oh sure. When he was like Brian Lost but Seeking Gottlieb. I've been very impressed by. I listened to podcast called five four which uh supreme court is, yeah is a supreme court focused podcast and i'm just very impressed that this deep into their run they've managed to keep up with the uh tradition of a simile of like what the supreme court is doing to the country every episode and it's it's quite creative and quite nice and it's it's very just to come up with jokes that of like that specific joke and iterations on it that consistently is really hard and really impressive so so this episode, we are going to mostly talk about Standard. I think we've both been playing a fair amount of it, and we mm-hmm. want to give you some tools going into this weekend for whatever you are playing. But we got some sort of like topical things that we just wanted to talk about first. Twitter stuff. I guess nope. the the sort of mild one to sort of to just ease into this episode is that Athena got hired to work at Watsi full time, which means that Ephro has to leave rivals apparently, which is a pretty wild policy that I don't think has any like basis in sense or reality. Yeah, this is a wizard's play policy. The way it works from literally <laughs> if you tried to look this up, which I have, it's very difficult to see what the policy is. But essentially what it is, I, I just couldn't find it anywhere. I could only find an update to it. But what it is is that immediate family members of R&D specifically, or maybe it's just Wizards as a, it can't, as a whole. Right, it can't be R&D yeah. specifically because she's a community manager. Yeah, sort yeah. Of person. So Athena got hired, which is Ethro's wife. And anyone in the immediate family who is hired by Wizards cannot play in premier level events in Wizards events. Mm-hmm. Or even Star City Games is actually included as well. Any any like third party, premier organized tournament. Right. When you were doing like contracted support for Wizards, you technically weren't supposed to be playing in like tournaments of a certain size or whatever. Right? Yeah, like the dollar cap couldn't. Well, for a long time, you just couldn't at all. Like you just couldn't play FNM, which wow. people were like, "This is pretty dumb. Why can't right. we just play FNM?" So they amended it to the can't have prizes more than like $2,500 can't mm-hmm. play in the big tournaments which I ignored because I was just doing contracted support <laughs> <laughs> I mean the policy as a whole like makes very little sense at all especially if you look at like the origins of it if originally it was like if you work for us in any capacity you can't play magic at all in any tournament and it's like but part of the appeal part of the reason that like Wizards doesn't pay its employees very well is because it's like, you get to come work on magic because you love it, and this is a dream job, but also you're not allowed to play magic anymore. And it's it just is a totally nonsensical combination there. 
and then they've, you know, clearly taken some feedback and adjusted it, but, like, the core concept of the whole thing makes very little sense. Like, what advantage does Ifro get as a, like, in tournaments from Athena working, doing social cord- social media coordination and, and, and whatever community management stuff she is doing? Like None. Just none at all. Yeah. There's... There can't even be, like, a conflict of interest argument because... Like, Ian, Duke, and Reed Duke are brothers. And mm-hmm. Reed is clearly still on the MPL. So right. I yeah. don't know why they're applying this policy or what. So this policy just makes very little sense and is not consistent. Like, there's no consistent logic here that would... If there's any reason that there's a conflict for Ephro and Athena, like, I can't understand how that wouldn't apply to Ian Duke in the, like, very middle of R&D, who knows everything that's going on in there, and Reed Duke. And, and, yeah, to, to, like, emphasize that, like, even if there is some random conflict of interest, R&D clearly does not know what's going on. Right. You're not going to get any advantage, like... <laughs> like, hey, by the way, we're going to print some blue-green cards we just didn't test very much. I don't think they're good, but who knows? It's, like, such a low priority to, like, it's it's insane. You would never get a competitive advantage in a tournament. The thing that people get an advantage from that they have not managed to stop from happening very clearly is financial speculation. You know, when Pioneer became a thing, that information got to some people a couple of days early, and they made who knows how much total, like, money changed hands prior to that announcement due to insider information, but it was a lot. There were tons and tons of orders of, you know, 180 smugglers' copters at a time and stuff like that, so. I remember when the new Phyrexia godbook got leaked, so mm-hmm. for anyone who hasn't been playing forever, back when new Phyrexia was being spoiled, like way before preview season, uh, Wizards would give out these godbooks, which had the entire set in it, to, like, print physical print magazines, so that they could have relevant articles and stuff. As a result, some people got just the entire set way earlier and could share it. And there was an infinite combo in New Phyrexia. That was the set Deceiver XR came out in. And Splinter Twin was, you know, a few sets prior. Mm-hmm. And it took the internet, you know, a couple of days to figure out the infinite combo. <laughs> and the Splinter Twins were hard to find <laughs> by the time people found the godbook, you know? Yeah. And and nothing has been done to end that, which is an actual conflict slash leaking problem with serious ramifications that, like, undermines the integrity of the market and also just the ability of players to get the cards that they need. And, like, no serious work has been done to curb that from happening. I, I just, like, the priorities don't make any sense to me here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it, it didn't make any sense to me either. It's just kind of a weird news that highlights how dysfunctional Wizards is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just a bad policy that is, like, clearly kind of thoughtless is all. But in less just sort of, like, shrug your shoulders at Watsi's incompetence news, we just have more racism in the magic community stuff happening. So we have a secret layer coming out that includes Teferi's Protection as one of the cards with some really 
adorable uh, just, art. It's God, so good. Yeah, it's so like warm and charming and lovely. Uh, and it features, it's just like Teferi and his daughter Niambi. And it is just like, it is the type of art that we never get on magic cards. It's why like cathartic reunion is one of my favorite magic arts. It's just different and loving and, and beautiful. Uh, and unfortunately it has been like taken by some of the forces within our community that I wish were not there and sort of they've tried to corrupt it basically and shopped this child into various other card arts and putting her in like, you know, deadly situations and stuff like that. And because she is a little black girl, there are all of these very clear like racial ramifications to this whole thing. I I don't probably don't need to delve too deeply into the like theory that goes behind like looking at this and understanding it i mean the the basics are they're taking a picture of a little black girl and putting her into a bunch of really gnarly situations and i mean as emma pointed out on twitter like wow it's amazing that nobody has done this with all of the pictures of little white kids on arts in sets this year like it's pretty clear what's going on even if it's not 100 percent the intended thing it's like part of the internalized bias of people in the community who are doing this and they're doing it to art of a black child on what was like really pure and lovely art and it's it's not cool it's horrific and it's i kind of want to go against something you said earlier it was like some of the unsavory people of the community it's true but it's also just like a lot of quote unquote normal people mm-hmm. like Ricky Ricky Hayashi posted just a picture of the judge Twitter uh, which are like typically long-standing community members who are really involved in magic just doing the same stuff same shit cursings allowed for this topic yeah fair <laughs> enough <laughs> and it's people are just like someone made it some judge made a post about it it was horrible obviously but then people laughed at it because, you know, it's mm-hmm. just us. And that's not how it should be. Right. Yeah. So what that means is when you do see this sort of behavior, and even if it's in small ways and stuff, then you do have to call it out and make sure that nobody thinks that any of your spaces are, like, safe spaces for being shitty or being racist. And not everybody is always going to realize that the thing they are doing is racist, but that means that it it becomes the responsibility of the people who do understand that to, like, call it out and explain it. And it is the responsibility of people who are not black to call that out because it's an exhausting task if we just assign it to the couple of black members in the community who are willing to actually talk about this, you know... It's not a fair job to give them. Anytime I hear someone saying something, it's just like, I don't want to hear that. I will tell them. Yeah. Uh, it's way easier if the closer I am to, like, like socially. Sure. Like the other day, someone referred to something as cancer, and I'm like, don't say that. Yeah. I, I like, I don't know. I, I've never been affected by cancer. No one in my family has had it. I, it's just not something that I've experienced, but I know people have. And it's like 
a horrible experience to go through and you just can't like demean things like that right i mean we have a bunch of things like you know ways of speaking and and slang and stuff that i i think that they like come from a previous time in the community and some of them have survived in some parts and they've been mostly pushed out it's been a long time thankfully since i've heard somebody call something gay as an insult like that's not something that really happens anymore uh but a lot of biases remain and are like really internalized and you know a huge one is dehumanization of black people and very specifically like to narrow it down even more is black children generally are viewed as like older and more mature and more dangerous than white children are. And so I would overcorrect as much as possible to try to protect black children and depictions of black children because the, like our culture has just this built in bias against them. That's so disgusting and unfair. And I hope there's way, way more pushback about this, like, community stuff, because I really like the art of this card. It's so good. Yeah. And and I was thinking about it, and part of me was like, uh, do I have to, like, am I going to think about this every time I see this art now? And maybe, but I don't think I have to let it, like, corrupt my appreciation of this, like really good art i wonder who did the art on it i'll look it up later but like it's it's if it's an artist i don't recognize i'd be interested in looking at more of their stuff yeah i don't know i i just wish i do wish we had more representation in magic art of both you know people of color a positive family dynamic of people of color on a magic card is like such a rare thing to get it's just like a, a coalescing of like several things that are hard to find on magic cards and it's really nice to see it and it is a shame that it like this happened to it but we don't have to let that ruin our appreciation of this art i don't think anyways magic time to... yeah magic time just had to soapbox a little bit but i mean some things need to be set yeah and i think it is our responsibility to talk about them uh so standard, you have been playing standard. I have been playing standard. I think you've been playing a wider variety of decks than I have. Yeah, I have. I do the thing I always do in standard, wild mm-hmm. cards permitting. I just like play four to seven matches with each deck that I can that looks mm-hmm. interesting to like try and find a deck that I want to like devote time into and play. Yeah. So I've been trying out like a pretty good variety of decks, but not. I haven't gone deep on really any of them. So I guess we should kind of go over the story of how this format is evolving <laughs> a little bit. Oh, it's still happening. You can talk about like each of the decks that you've played with, like as we sort of meet them along the way. Yeah, sure. I can do that. But, but you're totally right. Like the format is still evolving. And I think that we've got ourselves like the makings of a pretty healthy kind of metagame wheel or cycle here mm-hmm. and it seems unlikely that any deck is going to emerge as a very long-term best deck because every everything we've seen so far has distinct weaknesses yeah so where do you want to start do you want to start with like one of the moto challenges because that those have there's one that happened on saturday yeah sure so this i guess the timeline for this is big tournaments that happened this weekend where 
On Saturday, there was a Magic Online Challenge and the CFB Pro Showdown. Those both mm-hmm. happened on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we have another Sander Challenge and the Bash Bros Tournament. Yeah. And like leading into this, you know, the week before we saw Rakdos as sort of the big archetype, uh, rogues were around quite a bit. We were starting to see decks become a little more value-oriented over time. Yeah, and the, the value-oriented decks are kind of started taking over. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned last week that the Mono Green deck by Crokies with Trail of Crumbs and Wicked Wolf and that, that sort of thing. Well, uh, that sort of thing being Feasting Troll King. Yeah, Feasting Troll King. I honestly think the, the big part of that deck is not like Feasting Troll King. That's just like kind of a auxiliary thing. Uh, the main parts of that deck to me are Trail of Crumbs and the Great Hinge which are two excellent engine cards. Trail of Crumbs has really impressed me in this format, uh, just as a like piecemeal engine. Like It's so good in multiples, and it's really easy to find. Mm-hmm. So people started playing more Trail of Crumbs decks. Like We see uh, the Mono Green deck, a bunch of White Green decks have Trail of Crumbs. Uh, Adventure decks are still... Are, they're not Trail of Crumbs decks, but they are operating on a similar axis they used to be. There's... Green-black adventures, green-white adventures, green-red adventures. Pretty much any adventures you can take a stick at. I've seen Naya adventures yeah. as well. It's got to be green, though, because Edgewell Innkeeper is the only payoff you got. Right. <laughs> well, the adventure creatures are kind of their own payoffs because they are also two-for-ones. Right. But, but Edgewell you know, we don't Ratchets we don't call Rakdos Rakdos adventures just because it has Bone Crusher Giant and a couple of Embrace Shieldbreakers in the sideboard. Uh, we can we can change that. We can start calling Erectus Avengers. Sure. <laughs> Midnight Order of Midnight. Yeah, we'll put some of those in there too. Ooh, not a great card in that deck. You like blocking. Uh, that's true. They can't even block flyers on like Brazen Borrower. I know. But essentially, the the engine deck started. The value deck started coming. Mostly headlined by Edgewell Endkeeper, Trail of Crumbs slash the Great Hinge. Most decks most decks that play Trail of Crumbs have also the Great Hinge. Mm-hmm. and the other value card is just Yorion. Yeah. 20 extra cards in your deck, Yorion. Even had a spicy hybrid of Trail of Crumbs and Yorion where Brian Gottlieb made a green-white deck that is just four Yorions in the main deck, 60-card decks, food package, keep on getting value and value and value until you kill your opponent. Right. And, and sort of the point of these decks was... We started playing value-heavier decks, including specifically the card Wicked Wolf, to be very good against Rakdos. Like, you just... They can make you discard cards from your hand, but if you have Trail of Crumbs and two foods on the table, like, it doesn't really matter. And then your body's on board. Like, an indestructible Wicked Wolf is better than any of the bodies Rakdos can put on board. And so, if you're able to outvalue them over a game and beat a Kroxa on the table... Or have a lot of Skyclave apparitions that are able to just not allow that to be a problem, then you just play this straight up value game against Rakdos and, and win that pretty handily. And then those decks just continue to try to get like a little bit bigger than each other, is, is kind of how that normally goes. And and I think what we saw. Yeah, I started off with Green Black Adventures for my, you know, first foray into the format. A deck I absolutely detested previously. <laughs> Uh, because I just don't generally like green-black mid-range styles. But we have Edgewell Endkeeper, we've got Adventures, and I will, I thought Garrick, Cursed Huntsman, was very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to play that. So I had two Garricks in the first draft of the thing I did. 
And Golgari Adventures is fine. It it's yeah. like the small balliest of the engine decks. Right. So, You're not gonna keep up with the Yorion decks with the Great Henge in them with, with Golgari Adventures. Yeah, even if you have your own the Great Henge, which you always do, because your your deck's just too small ball. And honestly, once you're playing Lovestruck Beast, you might as well just play the Great Henge. Mm-hmm. Well, because you've got Kazandu Mammoth for free in all of those decks, too. So oh, you have, yeah. like, eight threes that lead into turn four Great Henge. So that's, like, like the Great Henge is better than it, but way better than it's ever been before. Yeah, the Kazandu Mammoth Fable Passage into the Great Henge play a four drop is just Ugh. nice. Yes. That is the turn you live for. <laughs> like, And if that card is Wrinkle somehow, the, which it never is, by the way. Because you do not have the mana to support right. all these cards. You need actual dual lands to pull that off. Yeah, that is the actual bad part. The, the worst part to me of Golgari Adventures was the mana base. Because mm-hmm. you don't have a double face land. You just have Temple of Malady and Fable Passage. That's all you got. Sure. Which makes playing like Edgewell Imkeeper and Falmire Knight and like some adventures in between with whatever Lovestruck Beast's other side is called. Heart's Desire? Heart's Desire, yeah. Like it just makes your turn's really, really difficult Yeah, for just your mana base. Right, like, and it, including when you have the Great Henge out, because, like, you needed double green in order to play it, and then it makes another double green. So you might have, like, six mana, and one of them is black. And that's, like, you got, like, Murderous Rider in your hand that you can't cast. I have held lands in my hand, like, forests in my hand. With a Lotus Cobra, just to produce the requisite amount of black mana that I needed for a turn. <laughs> That's funny. Like, I, I needed to hold a forest so I could cast Agadim's Awakening to get back on the board, you know? <laughs> sure, yeah. Moving on from the Golgari Adventures, the other two, uh, Green-White and Green-Red, are a lot better. I prefer Green-White. I think it's the best Adventures deck because Skyclave Apparition is so good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it just does everything. <laughs> Aside from, I guess, getting rid of the Great Henge. That's the only thing it doesn't do. Right. It get, it hits a lot, though. And Giant, uh, giant Killer? Giant Killer. Giant uh, Slayer? Is it Giant Slayer? Dang it. Yeah, that, that card's also good. <laughs> uh, there's I have like... to check because I... Yeah, Giant Killer. You, you're, you're right. It's Giant Killer. Damn. Nice. Nice. Okay. <laughs> you have to keep that in because I was right here. <laughs> Uh, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, oh, there's like two variations of Green White Adventures. There's like a mid rangier one, mm-hmm. and then there's one that plays like more low to the ground with Fairy Guide Mother. There's yeah. actually a lot of Green White decks in this format, which is surprising because. Well, I think very few builds of any individual like concept have totally settled down. Like we don't have best versions of anything yet. We're still figure like you get to pick your size, you get to pick your cards. Because you are playing a lot of kind of medium-ish cards in, like, all of these decks, which means that you just need to pick the ones that you think are the best for what you're going to play against a lot of the time. And for what it's worth, I liked the littler green-white deck version more, because I, mm-hmm. I really like Fairy Guide Mother and Mall of the Skyclaves. There's, sure. like, really good finishers where you get into these battles, particularly with Wicked Wolf, which is a really difficult card to remove and attack through. Uh, just having an ability to just go over the top of everything and kill your opponent that way was really sure. powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Fairy Guide Mother works really well with Love with Lovestruck Beast. Like, mm-hmm. they might not have been expecting even to for it to be able to attack that turn, and then you give it flying and extra power and the ability to attack. 
Like, that's really... Fairy Guide Mother's a 1-1. One, one. That's nice. Yeah. The, the plus 2, plus 1 flying, and then play Guide Mother at swing for 7 is a yeah. nice turn. Yeah. And then you can follow sure. up the next turn with a Skyclave on Lovestruck Beast, and that's just even more damage. Right. And extra 1-drop adventure creatures with Edgewall Innkeeper is always good, so... And unlike Green Black, you do have a dual land. Yes. And you have Skyclave Apparition, so your removal is, like, as good as the Black decks. Yeah, Skyclave Apparition, getting rid of any 1-drop is just excellent. Because you don't usually target one drops with it, but Edgewell Innkeeper is one of them that is just good enough that you need to get it off the table, mm-hmm. and then you don't even mind if your Skyclad version dies and gives them a one one because it's a one with no text. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have died going two and with Skyclad apparitions, just exiling three threes and four fours or three three costs and four costs, and then just like having my board wrath and then facing a bunch of illusions I'm no longer equipped to right. deal with. Right, <laughs> that has definitely happened to me a couple times. Yeah. Skyclave Apparition is really at its best in the Yorion decks with Glass Casket that just, like, can cycle through getting rid of the tokens for free, basically. But it's still just a really good card most of the time. These Innkeeper decks and the the Yorion... The Yorion decks hadn't really come into play for this specific Mm -hmm. tournament. They they were kind of being built. Uh, But Rogues rose up to fight them. Because Rogues is just the... It was bad against Rakdos, right? Because it's good. Rakdos is just too much removal. You get Crooks in your graveyard for free, mm-hmm. and then you have a hard time beating them. If you're just drawing a bunch of cards with not that strong of a clock, Rhodes is going to mill you out. It's going to kill you. You don't get free cards out of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's why we saw Rogues win the challenge on Saturday, and I think it also won on Sunday. Yeah, it won both challenges this weekend. Were they both... Ruin crab versions of They rogues? were both ruin crab versions. Jeez. I mean, maybe I've just been playing too many crocuses and stuff, but like, holy crap, the ruin crab version of rogues just seems worse to me conceptually. But if you are ending games by actually milling your opponents out, then I can see the ruin crab version being the one you want. And that is often how I was losing games to rogues. Like, I would play uh, in like Yorian decks I was playing or Trail of Crumbs decks, I would play a Trail of Crumbs or start my mm-hmm. value train going. But they'd had they'd already milled me for nine cards with their turn one rune crab, and another one was coming down. I'm pretty sure I can't kill them in time because they have too many blockers, and it just wasn't working. I just sure. died faster than I could, because these decks aren't get your value converted into a quick win. These decks mm-hmm. are get your value converted into more value, converted into more value. Yeah, and your overwhelm opponent. your opponent. Yeah. yeah, but Rogues doesn't care about that. It's just gonna fly over your stuff and take out your library. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean that makes sense and the other thing is so rogues versus red black red black is absolutely favored in a number of ways if you understand your sideboard plan though i've definitely seen rogues players who know what they are doing make rakdos players who don't understand the matchup perfectly like look pretty silly so, like, post-board games where you take a full control... Like, you have to take a full control role. You can't be playing Merfolk Wind Robber and Thieves Guild Enforcer against the, the Kroxa deck. But if you take the full, like, I'm embracing being an into-the-story deck with alternative win conditions... I saw, like, Reed Duke just sideboarding into Quad Shark Typhoon that he was planning on hardcasting one against Rakdos as his win condition. Um, and that seemed quite powerful... No matter what you do, I think that matchup is still bad. But if you think that Rogues is well-positioned for any particular weekend, 
and you spend time learning the Rakdos matchup, it doesn't have to be like a 25% matchup. Like you can make it much better. And that's, I, I, I'm sure that that is part of how these rogues decks won these tournaments is those players understanding how to play the worst matchup and make it not that bad. Yeah. And I also think it helped that you just don't really have to play against Rakdos that much anymore. Right. Of course. Of course. Like Rakdos is an, a complete underdog to all these decks with constant card advantage. Mm-hmm. Like Rakdos is a deck that wants much like Jund, just put both players at zero resources and then out just beat you with what they already have. Right. And you literally can't do that if they put a Trail of Crumbs into play. No, you can't. Or if they have a Yorion as their companion, you just can't get rid of it in time. Right. And and so yeah, I mean, I'm sh- definitely Rakdos being pushed out is the main reason for Rogues being good. But you're still gonna play against it every once in a while, and like taking that from like a 25% matchup to a 40 something percent matchup is a pretty big deal and i think that you can if you know the matchup better than your opponent i will say that i didn't play any games with Rakdos because i was just never playing against rogues like yeah I, I was I, that's not fair i did play against it a couple times but i was far more playing against everything under the sun that was just trying to draw cards especially uh monogreen monogreen's really really popular where i am at ladder right now which is in the mono green, as in like the the feasting the mono green food deck. Yeah, I mean it's a croquis deck, so it's going to get that boost, like regardless of how well positioned or anything that it is. And it is a very cool deck, so it has a lot going for it in the like recruiting players to it sort of thing. And speaking, of, by the way, I played that food deck. It is perfectly serviceable. Yeah, yeah, but I think it is directly worse than the white green, green deck that brian gottlieb made yeah uh, because the best thing the mono green deck has going for it is trail of crumbs it's one of the, the best card of the deck by a lot mm-hmm. uh and then the green white deck the which andre Stratsky actually won the cfe pro challenge with or showdown whatever it's called yeah uh, it's it, it's basically just a green white deck a green white mid-range deck you have gilded gooses and four yorians in your main deck and wicked wolves and food stuff land War visionaries basically you're just trying to assemble a board and you don't have any heavy hitters in your deck at all except mm-hmm. for amiria's call <laughs> which makes the, the games take a long time right which is why i lose to rogues when i play this deck because you just get value and value and value you exile their stuff with skyclad version so many times and then you just have to wait until you like attack them enough times with Yorion, or you get to cast Amiria's Call, or you find your one Kogla. Basically stuff like that. Or your Wicked Wolf them forever and they does, die that way. Does having just like, you know, a full boat of Chainweb Arachneers in the board, does that not do enough for the matchup? For rogues, yeah, it does. Like oh, okay. and that's that is the thing. Uh Chainweb Arachnir wins almost every game. I yeah. find it against rogues. Yeah. But it's not foolproof mm-hmm. because if you don't hit it early on and cast it pretty on time uh you, you're not going to beat rogues like you you need to have the most important card in that matchup is wicked wolf and chain web arachnir mm-hmm. uh, and it, you never win game one you just can't win game one against rogues sure so when you're trying to rely on sideboard cards to like give you percentages again in game two and three it doesn't really work out as well yeah, it's a little different, though, because you're not trying to draw these sideboard cards. You're just getting them dumped into your graveyard from their strategy, and every time you escape one, it removes cards from your graveyard to turn off. So I'm just wondering if there's, like, 
a number of escape cards to have in your deck, that's enough that it like really adjusts that that post board percentage. Well, I was playing four chain whip arachnids, mm-hmm. and the problem I was coming across was it costs five to escape that card, yep. which is fine. You're going to get there before rogues kills you. But after I escaped it and killed one of their things, it doesn't kill Road Grab. And that was the card I was losing to most. Interesting. Because I, I couldn't put enough pressure on my opponent unless I drew enough Wicked Wolves and Chain Web Arachnids in my graveyard. So I, I turn four Wicked Wolf or turn three Wicked Wolf with a Visionary. Uh, killing one of their things and then Chain Web Arachnids kill the other thing. You almost always win those games because you have enough pressure to kill them. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't have the Wicked Wolf and you just got the Chain Web Arachnir, it Rhodes could deal with one of their cards being gone and then they get to just keep milling you out sure yeah i mean the strategy that i have found to be the most effective and and i mean like like rogues is you rogues is built to fight those things like they have all they have four cling to dust in their 75s if they're properly built and they will have them post board so like they know about chain web arachnir the composition that i have found that rogues cannot beat is if your deck has four Skyclave Shades and four big escape things in it. Like, however you want to put those together, but they can't beat that density of stuff that milling it into the graveyard is bad for them. And also, playing a Skyclave Shade on turn two against them is so brutal. It's a guaranteed two-for-one that will probably also deal them a bunch of damage. Yeah, so you, you want to pressure rogues, because they're yeah. not great at pressuring. And Skyclave Shades is like the perfect card for that because it's a 3-1 you don't care. You can just throw it in the red zone forever. Mm-hmm. And it either chips away at their life total so you can win the game or it trades for the creatures that are killing you, which is even better. So, and they don't ever have the thing that shuts down a 3-1 that can only attack, which is a 4-toughness creature. There's none yeah. of those in the deck. None. It's just all 0-3s or 1-3s or 3-2s. Yeah. Because most of these rogue decks do not play very many creatures. Yeah, and so putting them under pressure is like really really important i do want to shout out philip marshall for playing in the cfv pro challenge uh 5-0-ing with the mardu doom foretold deck that i talked about on the last podcast uh he made some changes to it but he 5-0'd and then he ran into Strasky to uh for the win and in for the top eight and oh ended did up five in one ninth not place. make it to top eight? no he ended up in ninth place after 5-0-ing and then losing the sixth round because it was just like exactly the size to get most almost all undefeated players into the top eight, I think. Oof, that's rough. I, I did see it, Philip made it, which was really cool. Super old friend of mine. Have been playing Magic with that guy for forever, and it was cool to see him do hey, well. I know him too. Yes, we have known <laughs> Philip for a very long time. He's not just your friend. <laughs> okay, that's very fair. <laughs> I'm just saying that for the benefit of the audience, that's all. I would definitely not recommend playing... Mardu Doom Foretold, which is just Rakdos, Rakdos plus Doom Foretold, into a Yorion heavy meta game. It is a deck built for beating rogues and like is fine against creatures generally. Once people are getting like massive value with Yorions and Yorionable permanents, and once people are trying to go even over the top of those decks with things like Ugin and Genesis Ultimatum, then you Ugin is Ugin is beatable. Genesis Ultimatum is not not beatable so i can't recommend this sort of strategy of just like going a little bit bigger and more grindy like that's not it go under or go really big and i want to take your mention of ugin 
mm-hmm. to pivot into kind of Ugin decks. Yeah. Because there are a couple that I played. Uh, there's basically two builds that I was playing. There's a... The, there's Naya and Teamer, right? Mm-hmm. They're both red-green ramp decks. <laughs> it's just whatever your splash card is. Yeah. So the Naya deck... And they, they pretty much play the same cards. Uh, the Naya deck is more like a pure ramp deck. You play Cultivates, Lotus Garbage, all the ramp cards you can think of, ramp mm-hmm. up to Ugin, and then your only white card is Felidar Retreat. Yeah. Which is a, a really good bridge card. Uh, the reason... And I guess I could talk about the Teamer one too. The only difference in that is you don't play Felidar Retreat, and instead you play Genesis Ultimatum. That's the only mm-hmm. blue card in the deck. It's a triple blue card, which makes yes. your mana a little iffy sometimes. But because you have Lotus Cobra and Ramp Spells, it's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Unless you're drawing like so many Genesis Ultimaters, you can't handle it. <laughs> but that deck kills with like Terror of the Peaks and is less reliant on Ugin. Whereas the yeah. Naya one is more of a Felidar Retreat deck that eventually gets to Ugin and wins from there. The reason these decks work, these like Ramp to Ugin decks, is because all of the value decks are permanent cards. Like right. Yorion and Edgewell Innkeeper and Trail of Crumbs are all just permanents that Ugin comes down and wipes all away. Yeah. And you don't... All the value that they've generated is nullified at that point. Yep. The most you're ever going to leave your opponent with is, like, three food tokens. They, and just no trail no, of crumbs yeah, to crack no them no trail into. of crumbs. <laughs> because these cards encourage you to keep... The trail of crumbs especially. Yorion as well. They just encourage you to keep playing permanent cards. Trail of crumbs so you can keep drawing them. And Yorion, so you can blink them and get your value that way. Right. Which means you're just going to have a high density of cards on the table. And as soon as the ramp player plays Ugin and minuses it for like three or four, not even that much. Right. Everything is gone. (laughs) Everything except for the Great Henge. The Great Henge survives Ugin. The Great Henge does survive Ugin. But you can't... And usually the way the games progress at that point is... I played the, the Naya one more than the Teamer one. Because I liked Felidar Retreat a lot. Uh, usually, your Felidar Retreat can just straight up compete with the Great Henge when you have Ugin on the battlefield already. That's just not yeah, a problem. Definitely. And the Teamer one has an advantage where Terror of the Peaks is still a really good card. It's just a five power flying creature that also makes your Beanstalk Giants into self flinging creatures. Right. And it, it like dodges a bunch of the removal in the format, too. Yeah, it just like by being too big for Skyclave Apparition to remove and stuff, like it, it's harder to kill than you would think. I will say that these ramp decks are more like traditional ramp decks that we mm-hmm. expect to see from like five, six years ago. Yeah. Where you're just kind of playing your ramp cards and then playing your big stuff. Right. And... They're cultivate theme decks, basically. Yeah. And and that's fine. Like, I accept that as a part of my metagame, like wholeheartedly. And they have, like, really clear strengths and weaknesses. Like, uh, this deck is not very good against rogues. There's just too much disruption. They don't really care what you're doing. Uh, Ugin's not that great against them. Though Ugin is still good. Ugin's incredible. Yeah, if you can resolve it. But <laughs> right. That's a, that's a tough ask. It is they have a, a lot of negates post-board if they want them and, and stuff. And you have so much time to just refill with Into the Story. Because they mm-hmm. don't do anything early. The most threatening early play they have is turn three Bone Crusher Giant. That's like it. Right. And it, that's not like a... When I've played other decks, if you play Bone Crusher Giant in a Skyclave Shade deck, Bone Crusher Giant is actually crazy, and I you cast Stomp every once in a while, but honestly, like, turn two Skyclave Shade, turn three Bone Crusher Giant is just something that they're fundamentally not cut out to deal with. 
Bonecrusher Giant on its own, they'll take two or three hits off of it, hit it with a removal spell and take two damage, and then you're just never going to deal those less points. Yeah, you, you just have to be playing Teamer with, with a Terror of the Peaks at that point. Yeah. And those decks are also... I, I did not play against many of the blue-white Yorion decks. For whatever reason, I just did not... I, I didn't. I both didn't get to play it and didn't play against it much, so I don't mm-hmm. have too much experience in that realm. But these blue-white Azorius decks were all over the place. Yeah. Which, yeah, Th- those, those became a, a really real thing. And I think that they, even to the point where they got a little inbred such that people had to start running counterspells in their Yorian decks. And counterspells are really bad in Yorian decks, but it's, like, very important to stop your opponent's Yorians from happening. So we were seeing, like, main deck mystical disputes, I think primarily for mirrors. Yeah, I've seen main deck essence scatter more than main deck mystical dispute because it has Mm -hmm. a lot more utility. And I think that's where I would start unless you expect the warrant to be so many early blue card plays. Uh, but yeah, these blue-white Yorion decks are kind of similar to the blue, the green-white one, which was a value engine, but the blue-white one is much bigger, which mm-hmm. is weird, swapping out like green for blue, that your deck goes bigger. Well, Omen does. of the Sea blinking is like really big game. Yeah, Omen of the Sea blinking, as well as having Dream Trawler and Glasspool Mimic, mm-hmm. is really nice. These Some of these decks also play Solemn Simulacrum. So you can yeah. play Solemn Solar Acrim to both Blink with Yorion, copy with Gospel Mimic, and it's just a good bridge card to get you to Dream Trawler or more Yorions, because this deck plays four Yorions most of the time. Yeah, and a lot of times you are thinking about the, like, when you're playing against it, you're thinking about the, like, get my companion, play Yorion, like, sequence that they'll have to go through, and then it turns out they just have a Yorion in hand, and it, like, really messes you up. And the... A cute aside about this Yorian deck specifically on Goldfish is that Goldfish always has a picture for the companion, and then it has pictures based on what the most like played cards are or whatever. So for <laughs> this one I'm looking at, there's a Yorian for the companion, then there's just another <laughs> picture of Yorian because there's three more in the deck. <laughs> and then there's a picture of Skyclave Apparition. <laughs> Which, yeah. Blanket Skyclave Apparitions... Like, when you blink a Skyclave Apparition and your Glass Casket that had had a token under it or whatever, it's nice. Yeah, and I will say that I've played a lot of Skyclave Apparition in the past week. Skyclave Apparition as a Fiend Hunter is, like, kind of not very good. It's, like, good, but it can't hit creatures greater than four. But -hmm. where it really shines is as, uh, like, Core Sanctifiers or Reclamation Sage, Mm -hmm. where you just take out a random permanent they played that also is on a creature removal spell. And they never get that permanent back. Like, you can take yeah. their Maze Mind Tome or their Glass Casket. It's just gone. They can't blink it or get value out of it. Right. And the 2-2 that they get back if they do kill the Shade isn't that useful in that deck. No. So, like, Skyclave Apparition. I know everyone knows this card's good, but it is really good. Yeah, for sure. It is. It's it's incredibly strong. Oh, I will... I, to Before we move away from, like, raving about Skyclave Apparition... I noticed it won a modern challenge in just kind of a death and taxes style shell. Mm-hmm. First place in a modern challenge. <laughs> no Leon and Arbiters, so it's kind of not taxes, but there was death because it got right. first place with like 16 planes in modern. <laughs> uh, huge upgrade to make your deck not a Leon and Arbiter deck and to make it a Skyclave Apparition deck. Yeah. Uh, 
you can actually play magic against people in in that way. You're not just trying to cheese them out of games. And then if you like draw your arbiter on turn three after they've like cast an Uro frontside, then you know you don't have that happening to you anymore. Basically, just imagine the scenario where you vial in and a skyclave apparition and just take their vial. Yeah, that's incredible. Done. Yeah. yeah. What are they going to do? Kill it and get a one one? They don't want that. <laughs> Yeah, no, card is very, very good for sure. I, I, I mean, not a secret or anything, but and it's also uh, in all the legacy death and taxes builds, uh, they're all running three of that card because it, it's just perfect. Yeah, it's it's one of the best white cards we've had in years, for sure. Um, as far as these blink decks go, oh, there's also we should talk about the not even Luca decks anymore. They are Jeskai Luca style decks, but they are mostly running Transmogrifies in the Luca slots. So, I I don't know where you or what deck lists you're looking at because we might be looking at different ones. Mm-hmm. I only found two of these decks. Okay, um, it's just what I I saw it on Twitter many times. Basically, I, I know Will posted Will Polium posted it on Twitter, right. and it got retweeted a bunch, and people like started talking about it. And mm-hmm. he was playing Transmogrify. Uh, he got tenth uh, place somewhere. I, I know he did bubble out of one of these. Oh yeah, tenth place in the standard challenge on Sunday. The other Jeskai deck was a ninth place from the Bash Bros tournament, and that one was playing Luca instead of Transmogrify. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one is better. I'm probably on Transmogrify because it's a mana cheaper, and you don't yeah. need to Luca Transmogrify again. I mean, sometimes, honestly, with how like messy these boards get, especially with like sharks and Yorions and stuff, like it's possible that getting the second Dream Trawler comes up more often than you would think. But yeah, usually one Dream Trawler a turn earlier should be enough. Where it comes down to me, and I have only played the Transmogrify version, I have not tried the Luca version yet, uh, is that there's a huge difference between turn 4 and turn 5. Yeah. Like, the reason the old one worked with Luca, not only because Transmogrify wasn't printed yet, but uh, it had Fire's Invention in it. So a really common turn sequence was you'd play your Birth on 2, and then your turn 4 could be Fire's something, or it could be Fire's Wrath, and then on your turn five, you'd play something of a token and then Luca and Transmute, mm-hmm. and you'd have a Agent of Treachery and take their thing. Then, because your Agent of Treachery was your creature, you could then transmute that away for for yeah. another agent. Uh, because you didn't care about the creature you just tutored. Right. And that's just not a sequence that we care about now. That, that doesn't do anything. Yeah, you don't want to, like, Luca away a token to get a Dream Trawler. You're not, you're not going to Luca away that Dream Trawler. <laughs> Yeah, and it's way easier to protect than uh, Agent of Treachery is because it has hexproof built in. Yeah, and this also lets you then devote your five mana slot to just running as many Elspeth Conqueror's deaths as you want, basically. Right, and that's like a way more valuable thing than fitting some fours into the deck. Like ECD continues to be really, really good. I will say that I like four Dream Trawlers. Uh, Will was mm-hmm. only playing three, and I upped it. Just because drawing one naturally is just not that bad. Right. Did you have any, like, thirst for meaning or any way to discard it to get it back with ECD and sort of cheat a little bit? I did not. Will was playing Fire Prophecy, which I was playing. Just uh, to get rid of it, yeah. Yeah. But I, I was often... You have Narset, I guess, to discard it if you need to. 
mm-hmm. but that doesn't come up a huge amount. Sure. Mostly you just cast it if you draw it. Yeah, yeah. I just, like, I have enjoyed the sequence of putting something into my graveyard to make my Elspeth Conqueror's deaths, like, really, really threatening, basically. And but. that is, like, a point in Luca's favor. Mm-hmm. Because Luca, you can't, like, if you... And this is one of the decks that, like, can have some iteration to it. Because if you want to go more of a Luca version, if that ends up being, like, something you can do, maybe playing Elspeth Death with Elspeth Conquers Death with some Thirst Remainings is good there because you have more Planeswalkers to work with. Mm-hmm. And you can play more Narsets to put them in your graveyard or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because we don't have just the easy combo with ECD of just having a bunch of Teferis and Narsets in our deck, which was like a very cheaty way of making that card super broken. Yeah, thank goodness those cards are not available anymore. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Make deck building harder, but the format easier. Right. So, I mean, ultimately all of these are ways of playing this mid-range game of just like choosing your size and what your big mid-range threat is. Once you hit like Dream Trawler as your threat, you're like going to like max mid-range size. And then the only way to go above that is to engage in either Ugin or Genesis Ultimatum shenanigans. Yeah, that's the scale of the format. It's Edgewall and Keeper all the way up to Ugin. I mean, I think, like, kind of below Edgewall Innkeeper is, like, Blood Chief's Thirst Soaring Thought Thief, kind of. Like, that's, like, like Rogues is kind of, like, the smallest, like, you're you're a all one and two mana spell deck with a bunch of into the stories. So you're, like, operating as a way of attacking the metagame by not paying a bunch of mana for big spells. And I think that there's openings for that to be really effective if people are trying to outsize each other. Yeah, I guess... You're right. I guess the smallest is then Flourishing Fox. <laughs> yes, that's very true. Okay. Yeah, because I, I know only people... spend one mana on spells for most of the game, and then right, you play your Flourishing Fox, then you play maybe a two-two or three-one, and then you're good to go. You just cycle yes. for the rest of the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, until they're at you know a m- ten or something, and then you just cast a four mana spell that kills them. Yeah, you know, just put them to ten or so, and they kill them with one spell. I uh, played against Cycling once with Mardu and thought, like, they played a fox, and I was like, hmm, I don't, is this a, is this a good matchup? Is it, like, or, or is this a matchup that I can win? And then I drew a card for my turn and then realized that I had a bunch of Elspeth Nightmares in my deck, which was, like, oh, the no. goof card that people, rem- <laughs> like, realized was perfect against Cycling when Cycling first became a deck. So, uh, yeah, that matchup went pretty well for me. But, uh, yeah, if you're trying to go, like, real under and just not worry about stuff on board, you know, cycling can do it, for sure. When I played against cycling, I was playing green-white blink. Mm -hmm. And I smashed them game one because you can just, like, skyclave apparition the fox and it's laughable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you can can block 1-1 tokens for a long time. Yeah. Uh, And then games two and three, I died just by my opponent casting two Zenith Flares. (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. I think that's your your answer to boards being complicated is like you can cycle into two Zenith Flares and you can deal 30 damage to your opponent that way. So that that's a way a lot of games end. Because the first one also lets you survive an extra two turns to get to the next one, basically. Yeah, and there's no like huge life gain swings like there were with uh, Omnath and Uro. 
where yeah. your opponent was just a 27 the first time you drew a zenith flare and wanted were ready to cast it and you're like that only mm-hmm. does 13 damage that's not even half their life total <laughs> yeah yeah like, so i i can see you know we we can't tell you like what deck is going to be good at any particular time because like this format is moving at a pace but we can talk about just sort of like what these matchups are looking like so that you can try to identify what people are playing and use that to pick out your spot in the format. So I guess like your your decision point ends up being like do I play a mid-range deck? What size of mid-range deck do I play? Do I play rogues in order to just beat up on mid-range decks of the size that like once mid-range decks start teetering over at a certain size you just can't beat rogues anymore or do i play a ramp deck and just like say i don't whatever i'm gonna cast a seven or eight mana spell and and forget about all the stuff that's going on board like what's the what's the determiner for what i'm picking here i guess is, is probably something we should we should talk about how we would go about making that decision so i think there's two things really at play here it's kind of a comfort level and then like a a metagame angle level Mm -hmm. Uh, because some of these decks have a lot of variability and a lot of ways you can build it and a lot of ways you can play around with them uh these are mostly yorian decks and the deck we were just talking about like the uh the jeskai luka deck Mm -hmm. these are decks that have a lot of cards in them eight they're 80 card decks and a lot of different ways you can build them and tune them and you can go small or big as needed while still maintaining the core package of like Yorion stuff, which is a good place to be if you just don't want to play uh, the metagame tango, try to figure out like what is the absolutely best position. Mm-hmm. Uh, because no matter how you build your Yorion deck, it's going to be solid uh, and you can tailor it to what matchups you are going to expect to be facing and not have to worry about practicing a bunch with rogues if you don't particularly know what the format's going to be or your confidence level is not very high does that make sense yeah yep for sure i would definitely not recommend taking rogues to a tournament without getting a significant amount of practice with it in uh and especially understanding the board plans uh, because your, your deck changes fundamentally in role depending on the matchup and you often sideboard in 10 plus cards and and make your deck a totally different deck the other value decks, the Edgewell Innkeeper decks, they're pretty much really hard to change cards from mm-hmm. because you're kind of locked into playing so many Throne of Eldraine cards that have the word adventure on them. Yes. <laughs> you, you just are. You can pick your, you can figure out what size you want. Like personally, I really liked the green white one because it was you got to play Skyclave Apparition and you were a little more aggressive, and I liked being that while having value engines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you still get to play Kazandu Mammoth the Great Henge if you really want to. Though I was not main boarding the Great Henge. Uh, and, and you can pick your size of Edgewell and Keeper decks, but they're generally going to be fine t- as well. I just don't think they're quite as reliable as the Orion decks. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not as good at being Skyclave Apparition decks, which is, like, right. I think a big deal. Yeah, Skyclave Apparition is one of the better <laughs> cards in the entire format. Just because it's a huge check on everything everyone's doing. No one's yeah. playing, like, huge 5-mana or s- some cards that Skyclave Apparition can't fight, mm-hmm. which makes it a lot of the time just, like, kind of a vindicate. Yeah. Um, and we probably also should not forget that like Ember Cleave is still a card, and like that's an angle you can take. And I think specifically by playing Gruel, 
but it works. Like, it works. So normally here, I would actually recommend Monored. Mm-hmm. Because it is, like, if people are just trying to outvalue you, you can play Monored and just Embercleave them really quickly, right? But <laughs> I saw Sandy Dog on the Mythic Ladder yesterday, and he was playing, of course, Rogues, actually. Right. Just not Monored at all. <laughs> Well, he he won the the Bash Bros tournament with Rogues, right? Yeah, he did win the Bash Bros tournament with Rogues, and it, I mean that was yesterday. So two days later, just still playing Rogues, mm-hmm. in like low mythic. It wasn't even high mythic. If if Sandy Dog is not playing Water Red, I cannot in good conscience recommend it. I just don't think the cards are good enough, and I think that Mono Red just has like basically no capability of beating Bone Crusher Giant, which has not been a part of several of the decks that we've been talking about, but, like, you will play against Bonecrusher Giants. Like, one way or another, they will happen. It's got a hidden aspect, too, right? Like, it's it's in all the ramp decks. It's in sure. half of the adventure decks, if not Right, more. it's in all the, the Jeskai decks, like... Right. Well, no, it's not the Luka decks, but anything Jeskai colored with Yorion that's not Luka-ing is gonna have it. You just can't have it in a transmogrify deck. <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah, of course, you can't have it. That's that's fair. You would if you if you could just miss it, though. But, yeah. If you if you are playing red, you will have it in your deck. And Gruul has the ability to beat Bonecrusher Giant by being bigger... Th- by making the 4-3 body not crazy good against it. The mono red just, like, stomp kills all of your creatures, and the 4-3 is too big. So... I think if you want to be... I don't know if Gruul is actually that good anymore. I haven't played against it at all. I've not felt any pressure to play it either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did like... Like, if you want that kind of style, I think Monogreen is perfectly fine. Uh, because Primal Might does a, a fairly good Embercleave impersonation some percentage of the time. Especially when you add Embercleave to... Or not Embercleave, Wicked Wolves to the equation. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where I end up disagreeing with you kind of for the first real time this this episode sure. um i think that the mono green the attacky version of the mono green deck i think it's just not good enough i think you just don't have the tools to finish games off a lot of the time i think you need ember cleave in your deck basically and i just like have not been impressed by the mono green deck in any real way and like primal might i agree is quite good but there's just a lot of games where like there's too much nonsense on the other side for primal might to actually get damage through you don't have a lot of tramplers like they have bodies to block with because they're planning on blinking them with yorion and stuff and ember cleave is the thing that lets you kill the yorion decks and i don't think mono green actually has the tools to kill the yorion decks generally yeah i can see that i was more coming at an angle with not a mono green attacky deck I, mm-hmm. I was still playing, like, food stuff in the Monogreen Okay, deck, sure. Just with Primal yeah. Command as well. Uh, because once you add Wicked Wolf and food and stuff to the equation, you don't run out of cards as easily. You can keep playing the game. But you still have that option to, like, Stone Coil Serpent and play... Mm-hmm. Or, or Kazandu F, whatever one you want to play. Probably both. <laughs> and and you still have Primal <laughs> Command to, like... Primal Might. Prim- or, yeah, Primal Might to get a creature off the board, put them in a squeeze... Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. good enough to Embercleave to me. Whereas I do agree, I don't think like a mono green deck without food synergy is worth sure. playing. 
Yeah. Okay. For for sure. I I yeah. I, I definitely would be much more interested in playing a Wicked Wolf version of the deck. Um, but I think you do gain something by being an attacky deck in a metagame where people are trying to out Yori on each other. Like there's something there. And the only deck that I think I can recommend, I watched Canister play and just stay at high mythic like all morning today playing Gruel. A lot of these Yorian decks were just unprepared, so. Okay, well, for attacky deck column, let's put in Gruel and Rogues, because those are the attacky decks of the format. Like, if you want sure. to just ignore everyone playing Yorian and do your own kill them thing. Yeah. Uh, those are the two decks I think are in the best spot, at least yeah. at this particular point in time when we're recording the podcast. Right, and and as soon as the Yorion decks adjust and they're like, oh, I need to stop dying to Embercleave and I need to just, like, play some cheaper stuff, like, that changes immediately. Like, they can choose to adapt their decks so that it is way harder to kill them and then mize them out of the game with Embercleave. Like, that's not a tough adaptation to make. So. And that's why I have Yorion as my safest deck sure. column choice. Like, if, you don't, if you're undecided what to play play a Yorion deck. Uh, they're not all similar, but they're not very different either, if that makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're always going to have that plan of play to the board, get some value, get your Yorion, and then just bury your opponent. Yep. Pretty much all the Yorion decks follow that equation. The only exception to that would be the Doomfertile deck, which plays a little differently, and there's not much data on that. Uh, mm-hmm. There was one Doomfertile deck that got 6th in the CFP Pro Showdown. One really important thing that you can do in Doom Foretold that you can't do in the Yorion decks is you can adjust your Yorion matchup by sideboarding a lot of Hushbringers. Yes. So that is, I think, a part of the metagame that could emerge as really important. And I'm hesitant to recommend Doom Foretold because I think that is a deck with a lot of potential, don't get me wrong. I actually mm. really like Doom Foretold the card. But it's harder to build the constraints under Doom Foretold than mm-hmm. it is just Yorion. And it, it it's really uncomfortable to take it into a metagame where people are running a bunch of Omens of the Sea and Omen of the Sun, and then you have a Doom Foretold in your hand, and like, it's tough to get value off of that card sometimes. And you gotta remember Skyclave Apparition as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can get Doom Foretold, which sucks. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's brutal. It's happened to me. It's It's not fun. Like my, I, I have kept playing the, the Mardu deck because like I still run into rogues on ladder and stuff because, you know, I think it's legitimate to think rogues is well positioned. I still have not lost two rogues. I run into harder matchups as well. And I now have just straight up four Hushbringers in my sideboard. <laughs> uh, but like a lot of my matchups involve taking all of the Doom Foretolds out of my deck because... Sometimes they are good in those matchups, but sometimes they have two omens of the sea in play, and like it's just never going to do anything. Or sometimes it gets Skyclave apparition, and it's so painful. And it's really hard. I, I, the one that got six that wasn't playing Skyclave apparition. I don't know if that's correct or incorrect, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Because one of the weird quirks of Doom Foretold is that you can't cause your opponent to sacrifice tokens. Yeah. So if you play a Skyclave apparition and take like a three drop, which is a common play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually play Doom Foretold, you have to sacrifice the Skyclad Apparition to give your opponent a 3-3, and they don't ever have to sacrifice that 3-3. They always get it. Yeah. I mean, it depends on exactly how your deck is built, but likely it's not... Like, you're going to find an answer to that 3-3, or it's not going to matter that much, but it's it's certainly a thing. Yeah, it's a thing that 
annoys me in concept. I've not played any with the Doom Frontal deck. Mm-hmm. But I noticed this deck wasn't playing any, and that seemed like a very odd thing to me when it's clearly a very powerful card. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm sure that is part of the reasoning behind it. Um, if you have Birth of Melitus in your deck, then you can offset a lot of that potential problem. You just have an 0-4 wall that, like, hangs out and wasn't doing anything otherwise. Sure. Okay. And this this deck isn't even playing Birth of Melodus, so maybe that's like a, an adaptation we can do. Just like cut some Omega Suns uh, for Birth of Melodus, and maybe cut like a Yorion from the main deck and an Acquisition Expert or Charming Prince to like put in some Skyclave operations. I don't. There's like some stuff you can do. Yeah, and it's all like dependent on what you're expecting too. Like if you're expecting your opponent to attack you with creatures, like you would way rather have Skyclave operations in your deck than like Acquisitions Experts and stuff. Although I guess Omen of the Sun is like okay there but you know omen of the sun has not impressed me <laughs> yeah i've played it in a number of decks this past you know several days mm-hmm. and it's pretty much almost always the first card i board out and to to make room for cyborg cards right because it just doesn't excel at particularly anything right right the only time that my opponent has cast it and i've been like oh boy was like in combat, turned on a Heliod and got a plus one, plus one counter along with the two blockers. That is pretty nice. (laughs) It was very spicy. Yeah, but I I cannot imagine that the Heliod deck was that impressive. No, I I would love for it to be because, like, if there were, like, a white attacky deck that actually worked in this format, that would be neat, but and, I mean, you have, like, Maul of the Skyclave as your, like, finish the game card, but your bodies past, like, Luminarch Aspirant are just not really there, nope. so. Give me Hero of Bladehold. Or Isamaru. Yeah. I mean, we've got, what, some 2-1s. Archpriest of Iona is the, the party X2. Yeah, and it honestly, it work. if that card was a wizard or a warrior or a rogue, it would be yeah so much better. Yeah, if you could curve it into aspirant, like that would be a really big deal. And you know the like solution ish thing here is like put green in your deck, but none of those like green counters decks have been impressive to me in any way whatsoever. So yeah, the conclave mentor stuff is not like if you want to play a green white aggressive deck, just play the adventure deck. Fairy guide mother is excellent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that is a fine way to attack in this format is have a bunch of cards that give your Lovestruck Beast flying and attack the flying, <laughs> love, flying seven power Lovestruck Beasts. Yeah, that's always pretty nice. Uh, oh, I, oh, I didn't get a chance to, to say this while we were talking about white green, but I'll, I'll tangent this now. Because okay. this is a deck that has Vivian Monsters Advocate in the sideboard, mm-hmm. which is a card that I thought would be really, really impressive in the new format. And it's mostly just a good card. It, it's mm-hmm. like nothing special for it. At least right now. Uh, but one of the things I noticed when playing the green-white deck, the green-white Yorion deck, is that whenever I would have Vivian Monsters Advocate in play, I would minus her and just always get Gilded Goose. <laughs> it like, didn't matter the size of the thing I was casting. I just always had like a Trail of Crumbs or two in play. And the mm-hmm. best creature in my deck at that point was then just Gilded Goose. Right. You get to trail, you get to block for Vivian from like a Yorion attack, which by the way, a lot of games have come down to boards being clogged and Yorion's uh, like whoever can get their opponent's Yorion off the board so that they can start attacking for four. 
Like, that's what a lot of games boil down to. Oh, let me tell you about the Great Hinge plus one plus one counter on my Yorion. So that it can <laughs> attack through their Yorion? Yeah. <laughs> it's the game breaker. The turns that are, like, blink all of my creatures, several of them have comes into play effects, and I also have a Great Henge in play, like... That stack of triggered abilities is pretty real. The classic, put 11 triggers in the stack, discard 4 cards. Right. <laughs> Blink my Yorion if I'm feeling frisky. Right, protect yourself with the like Charming Prince Yorion thing. Yeah. Even a Wrath doesn't get you anymore. Oh, also, in the green-white deck, Tangle Florahedron was just so bad for me. Okay. Like At no point did I ever really draw it on turn 2, which is the only time it's good. Yeah, uh, this is not a deck that like it, it can leverage extra mana, but because Florahedron's so small and only produces green, it was often just safer to play it as a green tap land. Mm-hmm. Like the vast majority of the time I played it, it was just a green tap land. Okay, and at that point, I just cut one for a forest. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. I yeah, I don't think it's a card that you want to run in like huge numbers, but it's just like a you know, I have eight twos. And I wouldn't mind having 10 in my deck sort of thing is is kind of my feeling on like what that card's role is. But anyway, after, I guess if the safe choice is Yorion, Mm -hmm. then, then you have what, like kind of ramp decks? I think that it is worth putting time into being a very good rogues player. I do too. Like I don't think I don't think this is a like fairies situation necessarily or anything where it's just like this is actually just the best deck and it's going to be because people are going to be casting five mana spells for a long time and you're just bet- good at beating. You know, this isn't that kind of blue black deck, but it attacks on a lot of axes that like when somebody's focus is on being a green white deck that's bigger than the other green white decks in the format, like they're going to forget about you and you're going to beat them. And if you know how to play your way around them having escape cards and you know how to use your cling to dusts and you know how to sideboard into being a like focused uh, into the story control deck and you understand how that works, like that may, it may not be the right choice for every weekend, but it's absolutely going to be the right choice for some weekends. And it's going to crush some tournaments over the course of the next couple of months. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think Rogues is a really solid strategy with a lot of play to it, mm-hmm. which is just a good place to be. Yeah. There are a couple of deck archetypes I can talk about that haven't impressed me so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's mostly Winota decks and yeah. control decks for different reasons. Uh, Winota just does not have a support cast, kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there is Bosri's Lieutenant, which is the best. That's the good one. Yeah, yeah, that's the best. That's kind of the only thing you ever want to hit off Winota. Mm-hmm. But the problem with the Winota decks is that you... The format isn't such that you can play a bunch of crappy cards, and then if you hit Winota, you win. Mm-hmm. Because people just aren't like playing to the board that often. People just are playing to the board all the time now. And because you're playing a bunch of like crappy creatures to enable Wynota. Right. If you're playing a bunch of like medium to fine creatures and your opponent's playing medium to good creatures and you just right. don't have Wynota, your deck you're just gonna lose every time. And right. that's here's a love struck beast, you can't attack with anything. Like, good luck. Well, it honestly ends up just being 
draw Winota, swing with my board, right. pray I hit something. Because <laughs> right. you don't have Winota but, but, next turn. But your hits are like value E4 fives, and your opponent, like, if they have a great engine play by then, like, Winota's not beating that because you're not getting agents of treachery or anything like that yeah uh, winota i and mostly i've seen boros uh the highest placing one i found was a 14th place in the cfp pro showdown uh but that list is very similar to one i played and played against it, it's just not impressive it, it just doesn't have enough oomph without drawing the card winota sure yep that makes perfect sense to me and control decks Control decks, I just, they're just not on the right axis. And when I say control decks, I mean like capital C control decks. Mostly <laughs> removal with a, like, that you're not dedicated. Like, yes, there are decks with dream trawlers in them, but there's like a big package dedicated to putting those dream trawlers in play as pro- like game plan number one. You're not countering spells and wrathing the board like over and over again until you finally decide to cast a dream. Tra- like, that's not what the dream trawler decks are about. Yeah, so weirdly enough, I have played some Dream Trawler control decks. There, I did horribly. Uh, basically, the thing is that everyone is valuing all the time with throwaway creatures, which is mm-hmm. like the worst place to be in a control deck. Yeah, because if you're opponent- people keep casting like like Lanoir Visionary, and then that just like attacks you every turn. Or if you play your best two drop Maze Mind Tome. And your opponent mm-hmm. plays Skyclad Apparition. That's, right. that's horrible. <laughs> like, you've just given them a target for Skyclad Apparition in your deck that just doesn't usually have targets for that. Sure. Uh, weirdly enough, the deck I found that did the best of any control deck I've seen was not a Dream Trawler deck. It was actually just Demir Control, mm-hmm. uh, which got third place at the CFP Pro Showdown. A tournament I did not watch because I was too busy playing Magic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like... Uh, a four Planeswalker deck, there's one Ugin and two Ashioks and a Jace. Uh, a Murderous Rider and two Solemns, and then just a bunch of Shark Tiffins. That's how we win yeah. the game. <laughs> and then a, a million removal and counter spells. Which, when I saw this deck, I was very impressed that it made it like so far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it seems impossible. It just doesn't to match up against any of this stuff. Right. Like Edgewell Innkeeper, you have to kill with oh, your one Blood Chief's Thirst. Or that that's all you have in their deck that kills it a mana parity. Mm-hmm. And then you have to deal with all their stuff two for wanting when you don't have lots of good ways to get advantage. Like the best card advantage card is Maze Mind Tome, which is a good card, don't get me wrong. For sure. But when everyone's rolling up with like seven Skyclad apparitions in their deck somehow, <laughs> <laughs> like it's just not what you want to do. You right. don't want to you, play... you don't feel like you ever untap with that card against the white decks. Yeah, like, you get to scry. Twice, maybe. (laughs) And that's not what you put it in your deck to do. You, like, put it in your deck to just let you play more removal spells and eventually get something online. Mm -hmm. So I would highly not recommend Control. (laughs) Even though it got third in this one tournament, I cannot find anywhere else it did any well at all. Uh, The personal results I had with it have been miserable. Playing against rogues especially, not fun. And, and not only, like, is your heads up against rogues bad, but, like, the existence of rogues, I think, renders this type of deck, like, kind of pointless. The only playable control deck in this format, I believe, is the post-board versions of rogues that are going hard control. You get to choose to be the control deck when it is appropriate to be that, after you've seen what your opponent's deck is. 
I I would vastly prefer that to to trying to make like this all removal deck work in game ones. I, I I agree completely. I think a lot of time people play control. They're essentially giving up a lot of game one equity mm-hmm. to have good post board games because generally control decks are just have really robust sideboards uh, and they can sideboard a bunch of different ways. But the trade-off for that is that their game ones are just really static and really skewed towards dealing with aggressive decks. Yeah. But because everyone is playing so many value cards, it's hard to really get a handle on control of the game. Right. And I don't want to give up all my game one equity when I could play something like Rogues, which, you know, has some good matchups, has some bad matchups, but the good matchups are, like, pretty good. Right. Somebody's casting Genesis Ultimatum against you game one and you are Rogues, like... You got this one on lock. You're set. Yeah. So no control for me. Just rogues is probably the control deck you want. Just invest mm-hmm. some time into, like we said, learning how uh, exactly how games one is different from two and three. And like yeah. the configuration of your sideboard, how you want to approach each matchup, I think is really important with the rogues deck. Mm-hmm. Which I honestly should put some time into because that's one of the decks I didn't play. Uh, it's just normally a deck that doesn't appeal to me very much. Sure. Uh, I kind of wanted to get some more data, like some more deck lists for rogues before I wanted to like try a bunch out. Because right now we're like only a few days into the format and most of the decks were the same. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of pick and choose holistically what a sideboard would look like before I kind of was ready to pick a random Demir rogues deck. If that makes sense. For sure. Yeah. And I don't think you can build it the way that, like, Reed had it built, where he just straight up had four Shark Typhoons in his sideboard, because that was a plan for, like, I believe I am favored against every deck in this meta except for red-black, and, you know, there's a healthy amount of red-black, but I think I can adjust my postboard to be favorable enough that I'm comfortable playing this deck. Like, that's kind of the idea there. We're not in that meta anymore. You need different answers for different stuff, like... You need extinction events in your sideboard and stuff like that. So, uh, so can't so can't be quite as focused on like a specific transformational plan. But you can build some like pretty specific like I got to take out a lot of one drops in this matchup sort of plans. Like that, those can absolutely exist. What what would you play this weekend? Do you know? Um. Okay. So I have different motivations now playing magic than like in the past i like realized you know i i complain a lot about resetting the ladder every single month Mm -hmm. and i do think it is terrible policy but i then realized after like posting the mardu deck and people getting excited about it that like it's actually just an opportunity to like make mythic with some dumbass deck every month and that's like kind of what i want to (laughs) do All right. (laughs) If I were taking things like really seriously, what I would do is I would get real good with rogues. And I think that this is a metagame that I don't have any confidence in timing properly, basically. But I can understand how to play rogues in different matchups and know that, okay, I mean, if I run into a red-black heavy weekend or just generally like croaks a heavy weekend, however that plays out, okay, I'm going to lose. Or if I run into, like, a lot of Ember Cleave decks, okay, maybe I can't keep up with those regularly. But as long as people are trying to out-midrange each other, then I want to be rogues and learn my plans inside and out. 
if I'm actually just going to jam this weekend and play something, I'm honestly, like, my silly Mardu Doom Foretold deck, <laughs> I continue winning with it. I am top 100 Mythic right now. I put Hushbringers in there. A lot of people don't understand how to play against Hushbringer with their Yorion decks. So, like, my board plan is often just take out Doom Foretolds, bring in Hushbringers and Ember Shield Breakers, because their only answer to Hushbringer is Glass Casket. And then their deck is all gray ogres and stuff if there's a Hushbringer in play. Uh, and I can beat that with Kroxa. So I am like pretty fine being a guy playing a deck that like my opponents don't understand how to play against at this point. <laughs> if I'm trying to beat high caliber players and win tournaments, uh, I, I'm going to get good with rogues. All right. My, my motivation just has not changed at all. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But that's because I'm just a pretty casual person in general. Uh, <laughs> I would play some Jeskai Luka deck, or Jeskai Transmogrify deck is mm -hmm. where I would start. I just want to tinker around with that a little more. Yeah, I think it's got a powerful sidestep to what people are doing. You can play a lot of cards in your deck without needing to play to the board, which is mm -hmm. a little scary. But because Dream Trawler is such a good card that's really good at stabilizing the board sure uh, it's something i've enjoyed playing and i don't know i just kind of like playing a deck not a lot of people have played against before while still having a like strong plan and i think the jeskai luka decks are that yeah i mean there's very specific equity to be gained in a like measurable way almost by playing a deck that your opponent's like sideboard guide doesn't reference so. <laughs> yeah i've been in that spot many times yeah, it's good. It's a nice spot. Though, I, I have a sideboarding story, which I might tell uh, now, because I just referenced yes. it. But <laughs> I played... I, man, I hope I haven't told the story on the podcast before. But I played against someone at the Invitational where I was playing KCI. And this wasn't the Invitational Invitational. It was uh, the Cube Qualifier side of it. Because I... Right could not make it off work to play the main event mm -hmm. so i was just playing kci on the side event i was at six and oh having been maybe five and oh having been paired down towards the person who was four oh and one who was also playing kci <laughs> and he knew what i was playing i did not know what he was playing because he just recognized me from the guide i had written like the two weeks prior mm -hmm. from on the kci thing and I beat him game one, which is cool. Then in game two, we get deck checked. <laughs> and I, as I always do, because this is like the, the tournament hack, whenever I get deck checked, I always go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> and not even if I don't like really need to go to the bathroom, though I typically do because I don't, I have really terrible timing for Tournament that kind of time thing. management yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I typically actually do need to use the restroom but i will always ask the judge if i can go to the bathroom because even if i like don't uh it's just time away from the table where i don't have to like look at my opponent and wait for 10 minutes and i just <laughs> hate being in that position sure i just like don't want to make small talk which is kind of mean i guess but i i can just use my time to go to the bathroom which i usually have to anyway <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I asked to go to the bathroom, and 
The judge says, yeah, that's fine, but you have to leave your phone on the table because you can't reference any sideboard guides. And my opponent, who is referencing a sideboard guide I wrote, <laughs> just starts <laughs> laughing. <laughs> yes, I... That is... That's really good. I, I remember being told that as I... Like, we were getting deck-checked in a sealed event. Like, a like it was like the last round of a, a PPTQ or something like that. And I went to the bathroom and had to leave my phone at the table. And I was, like, really racking my brain for, like, what I could look up to yes. help me. Wait, sealed? Yes! Hmm. Did you think of anything? Nope. Did not. Huh. That's almost as good as the time... Uh, I think Jeremy was on my team at this point. Or maybe I was just watching it. But one of Jeremy's opponents asked to go to the bathroom to get a deck check. Uh, the judge asked him to leave this one on the table. And either the guy didn't hear or he just didn't listen. And he just went to the bathroom. And Jeremy just followed him into the bathroom just to make sure he wasn't doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think he was going to do? I have no idea. Well, we can't have any of these interactions anymore forever, basically, because we're just never going to be at a tournament. My deck check days are behind me. <laughs> I mean, I never really got deck checked all that often. It feels like I've got deck checked less than 10 times, and I've been to so many tournaments. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like I've gotten a healthy number of deck checks. Maybe I just don't remember them much because I'm never at the table. I'm just always in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess, did we ask for Patreon questions? We did. I got it in the hour before we started recording. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's let's uh, get one. So for the Patreon question, Underdog asked, how would you like to see tourney structure improved or adjusted as a result of what we've learned from online tourney structure or the current circumstances when we return to paper? So for the past six, seven months... It's just been all online tournaments, which have their own upsides and downsides, right? But it's hard to translate all of it to paper. One of the best, 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 best things about online tournament structures are that there are no intentional draws. Mm -hmm. Because there's no... A game has to result in a win or a loss when you're playing on one of these online platforms. There's no way to get a draw. Yeah. So because of that, there's just no intentional draws. It's something I would like for a paper, but is completely infeasible. Because it's the same reason... You can just draw. You can just play both play really slowly, and it just creates... It, it's just bad incentives. Yeah. Right. It's bad incentives, because both players can just play extremely slowly, and oh, looks, we drew. <laughs> what are the chances? Right. So that's like the best thing about online tournaments, but can't go to paper, which is kind of sad. Uh, but there's a couple more differences that I'd like to talk about. I don't think people think about too much. Uh, one of them is that almost all online tournaments are open deck list, which is good and bad. I think for online tournaments specifically, open deck lists are really good because you don't have to moderate what people are playing as much, where it's mm -hmm. really, really easy to just switch decks back and forth uh, right. on, in specific tournaments or cards or whatever you can do this in paper but there's no like real way to track any paper lists anyway whereas online it's really easily regulated yep yeah uh, so just making people 
not disadvantaging coverage as well where you know you see someone's list on stream and just you already have access to it because an open necklace tournament is really nice mm-hmm. but that being said i don't want to see any open necklace tournaments in paper <laughs> yeah i the logistics are kind of a nightmare Ooh. and like also having secret sideboard plans is fun yeah a couple tournaments they did this right the pro tours mm-hmm. uh where maybe they were mythic some things at that point but right. <laughs> i completely forgot the name of the old ones <laughs> but the they would like have lists which would have complete main decks and then just a list of cards in their sideboard but no numbers mm-hmm. associated with them which is like an incomplete measure which led to some really weird incentives like someone just playing a ley line of the void in their sideboard and their opponent yeah. not knowing how many there were and it was like the most important card in the matchup but mostly it's just not cool like it takes up a lot of time you don't want to open decklists change how people play magic because mm-hmm. if you are a reactive deck you're going to be way more happy with an open deckless tournament than if you are a proactive deck because your opening hand decisions are easier you know exactly what kind of threats your opponent has and you won't ever be caught off guard by something you weren't expecting or you get to know the exact suite of stuff they have that you can play around. Right. In a London Mulligan world, the reactive decks have benefited so massively from open deck lists. It's like a, a huge change to meta stuff. Like it, it, it absolutely changes win percentages in meaningful ways. So those are like a couple of things I think online does well, but don't translate to paper. But one thing we absolutely should have in paper that we just don't, and online we just don't even think about, is that you don't have to think about who goes first. (laughs) The game does it for you. (laughs) Like, it just decides who gets to go first in the first game. Mm -hmm. And I would love it on paper tournaments if they just printed out who is on the play on the pairings board. Yeah. Yeah. Just do that. It's, I mean, I'm sure it's impossible because, you know, programming. Well, because it's Wizards Event Reporter. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. But, like, come on. It's, it would save so much time of people just, not even just the physical act of, like, rolling a dice or playing rock, paper, scissors or whatever. But also, like, time of judges that are spent, like, arbitrating just ridiculous who goes first disputes you know yeah yep i agree um one other thing that i have liked is uh and i mean i don't know like what this might be hard for certain paper tournaments and stuff certainly add some time on but certainly for coverage purposes double elimination top eights i think are really nice i i actually agree with that too uh one of my favorite things about the new system of competitive magic is the double elimination pro tours make watching things both really clear and like kind of exciting Mm -hmm. because even if your favorite gets like you know knocked down to the lower bracket in the first round you know they're Mm -hmm. coming back and make maybe can make a sweep right which is i mean i don't like i don't like the like double elimination format for like a whole the whole tournament oh no but double elimination top eights i think are like perfect like it, it makes the the most important and funnest part of the tournament lasts a little longer. It like reduces some of the variance inherent in getting a rough matchup in the quarters. And I, I think it's a pretty big improvement to just like 
add a couple extra rounds into the top eight, basically. Though I guess it's more for like premier level tournaments because mm-hmm. if we just go to like you know an IQ or even a Star City Games tournament, yeah, I, I don't want, really want to play through a double limb top eight. I got a plane to catch. Can't be staying right. here for an extra like three hours. <laughs> true, true. But like, if we get paper PTs back in whatever form, I think I, that they, I think it would be excellent to have double elimination yeah. top eights. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's all I think. Of, that, that That's all my ideas for adopting online tourney stuff. All right, we do have like a secondary Patreon question. <laughs> yes. From Sean Hunter, which actually got, did, did well at one of the tournaments this weekend. He got fifth place with the Monogreen Food Deck in the Bash Bros tournament. Nice. So good yeah. job to Sean. Got ninth at the last one, fifth in this one. So we're making our way up. Yes. Uh, but he asks, when is the MTG Grindcast Patreon tournament happening? Haven't really, like, specifically thought about this or planned this out. I don't know what... I know that we were talking about doing, like, a Patreon, like, boxing league kind of thing. Because uh, I know that, like, that's a fun EDH format that, that has had some discussion lately. As far as, like, a Patreon tournament goes, I don't know, we'd have to do some sort of kind of neat tournament structure and maybe multiple, like, maybe make it more of a, like, overtime sort of thing. Uh, I don't know exactly how we would do it, but we should do something at some point. Yeah, like, one of the things I know we were talking about in the Discord was to make it, like, a limited focus tournament, Mm -hmm. which I think would be really cool because there's, like, some different coverage stuff we could do to make that interesting or, like, try out some stuff. Uh, and as far as I know, no one is offering any kind of limited tournaments, like, really True. at all. Yeah, I know that one thing that we were kind of thinking about is do it, like, draft open style, basically, and just have draft pods that, like, feed into, you know, based on record or whatever. You know, ideal draft open format is, like, 64 players and you grab the winners of each pod and you know i mean maybe not ideal because then it's single and maybe we can do a little better than that but uh yeah if we could do like basically a draft open where we just have the players draft play in pods get paired up by record again we would have to use some sort of drafting tool and i don't know exactly how to do it but it could be really fun to do especially if we could like view some drafts so like do cover like just chill coverage like be on a couch and talk about it you know yeah yeah that's like something I am more than willing to think about and do if people are like interested in that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, and we would only need, you know, if we get 16 people who are interested in doing it, it's worth doing. Yeah. So, so please, if you're a patron or you just love limited and want to become a patron. Yeah. Just let us know what you want. That'd be great. Because <laughs> I really do like even talking about and watching limited kind For of sure. more than playing it a lot of the time. I, yeah, I, I like, I don't know, I really love playing Limited. I like the experience of playing I, I like the experience of running my opponent out of resources via, like, good combats for me, and that never happens anywhere else, so Limited playing is, is, is where it's at. I also really like playing Limited, but I, there's always a threshold point when I had a set where I'm just ready to stop. Like, I, I've drafted the set as much as I'm going to. And sure. I'm done for an house, but I will keep watching people play limited or talk about limited because I think mm-hmm. it's just a really interesting form of magic. It's like pure yeah. magic. It, it is. It's, it's so much closer to the like 
vision the vision of like some people will have some cards and some people will have other cards form of magic that that like you know the platonic ideal of it yeah so yeah we should set something like that up let's let's think about it let's keep talking about it in the discord and if you are interested in playing let us know and if you are not a patron yet and think that would be fun you know sign up head over to patreon.com slash mtg grindcast and show up in the discord and let us know what what you like and we will definitely take that into account if you want to find us on social media i am tweeting from at ccr underscore grindcast lee is also on twitter i'm at lee mccleo Lee, you got anything else you want to talk about before i finish signing us off oh go ahead and sign us off i have ranted about some digital tournaments and some stories i think i'm set for this week yes oh one thing that i dang this is like way late in the episode <laughs> to get into this at all this should have been at the beginning um but austin bersavich is now in rivals replacing ifro yes two things about this number one obviously austin should be in rivals now he should be in the mpl now he's had a better season than like i've seen in years uh dude has absolutely crushed it this year I don't. I still don't understand what the like paths to rivals or MPL have been. It seems to be just like if enough noise gets made about somebody needing to be in it, then they get into it eventually, and that's like the main way that people have like left. The main way people have left are by like extenuating circumstances, like getting kicked out or having to leave because your spouse works at Wizards. The main way that people have gotten into it is because the community has been like, uh, this person should be in it. And this system doesn't fucking work <laughs> no. if those are the <laughs> those are what the, the the factors that lead to these things. I, I did you see Ari Lax's tweet about this? No. Oh, you just like echoed him so well. Oh really? Yeah. He's basically <laughs> well, like good, what is he the usually system? Gets stuff. Yeah, he does. He's like, what is the system other than we put people in the MPL once people complain about it enough? <laughs> oh geez. Okay. Well, <laughs> yes, I agree with Ari on this one. Yeah, you, you agree with Ari. I do too, honestly. Though I do I need to do some more thinking about like organized play in general, because I was listening to Ross talk about it on his podcast. He made mm-hmm. some good points which I hadn't really thought about, which made sense. Yeah, that's like stratify systems because magic was getting too big for the old system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really have a complete opinion on that, but you know, maybe we can talk about that at some other end of episode. Yes, <laughs> I mean, my like very short form take is magic got bigger and they shrunk the size of the organized play system by a like pretty significant amount, and that combo makes it fundamentally inaccessible to the vast majority of people playing magic. Yes. Anyways, we already did most of the sign-off. Thanks to everybody so much for listening. And have a great week. Have Have a fantastic week. Yeah. Okay. Bye.